Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. This is James Altucher with the James Altucher Show, and I'm here with Mark Cuban, owner of the Dallas Mavericks. Mark, how's it going? It's going great, James. How are you doing? Going great. And Mark, I want to talk about your most recent venture, Cyberdust and all that led up to it. Because, but I want to start earlier because I feel like th- there, there's one interesting line that goes through all of your startups, and I feel that's happening here with Cyberdust. But it, it started back with Microsolutions, with Broadcast.com, with the Mavericks, with Landmark, all the way up to Cyberdust. And it kind of contradicts something you wrote in 2012, which is you said you, you wrote that. Tell me that if you're going to be 10,000, you don't want to be 10,001. No, uh, all of that, all of that's interesting too. You wrote about how interest or, or no, being good at something usually precedes interest. I mean, usually precedes passion. Right. A lot right. of people think passion, they, they're always looking for their passion. And right. I agree with you that in general, that's not the best advice. You're not going to find your passion first. And you say you tend to be passionate about what you're good at. But what I noticed going back to all of your ventures is that for you, your primal passions came first. Like you wanted to watch basketball, so you started AudioNet. You know, no, you wanted no, to, no, to no. own a basketball team, so you bought uh, the Dallas Mavericks. Like your passions clearly passion came first. Was getting rich, right? All right, that that's a good passion. That was my first passion. Going back to when I was a kid, I always wanted to work for myself, and so with Micro Solutions, um, I got fired. And so I didn't have a lot of choices, but I had a customer to come with me. And so, you know, my passion for starting a business, um, my goals, um, that led into me actually, you know, starting Micro Solutions with no money, six guys living in a three-bedroom apartment, sleeping on the floor. Um, but I, I just went for it. And it wasn't because I was passionate about systems integration. It wasn't because I was passionate about computers, even though I liked them. Um, I had never taken a, I'd never really taken computers in school, um, but I got into it and I was good. You know, the more I worked at it, the better I got at it. The better I got at working with software and writing software and you know doing networking. The better I got at it, the more passionate I became about it. The more passionate I became about it, the better I got at it. But it was really putting in the time and and my desire to be self-employed and to be an entrepreneur that that really drove it. And what's what's great is so you I, and I always tell people this: don't go for the billion. First, go for like a couple of million so that you have some comfort, so you can so so you, the stress is reduced. Then you can go for whatever you want. So you cleared, you sold Micro Solutions, you cleared two million after taxes. Let, let me give you let me give you kind of a preamble to that. So I had Micro Solutions and. You also have to realize that in college, I had a bar, and it was called Motley's Pub, and we got busted for having underage drinkers 
and we had a wet t-shirt contest that had an underage participant. How come you didn't invite me to that? You know what? You probably were invited. You just, you know, didn't show up. But, I was a little too nerdy. <laughs> but anyways, um, so I went through a period with that business where, you know, I just wanted to survive month to month. And then when we got, I got to Dallas, got a job at Your Business Software, lasted there nine months before I got fired. So I didn't have a track record of a lot of longevity. So when, when I started Microsolutions, you know, I wanted to be profitable month to month to month. That was my short-term goal. I didn't, I didn't have money to absorb any losses. I, I wasn't going out there looking for investors. Um, I didn't raise any money. It was all sweat equity. So I just, my initial motivation was surviving and paying my bills month to month. And literally, you know, that's why I live six guys in a three-bedroom apartment. You know, we used to take turns writing checks to each other, so we'd have a little bit of float time till the till it cleared the bank and, and use that to pay our rent. Um, you know, never take out more than $20 when we were going out so that we wouldn't spend too much money that we didn't have. I mean, I had nothing. And so I just wanted to make enough money every month to pay my bills and then slowly but surely grow. And then my next goal, once that started to happen and I got into year, you know, three and four and five, my goal really wasn't to, to be, you know, a million, have a million in the bank or two million or 10 million. My goal was to retire. But my parameters were that I was willing to live like a student. And so, you know, I felt like, okay, if I could get to a million saved, then I can live like a student. And back then, interest rates were a lot higher, so I thought, I, okay, I can live off $100,000 a year at 10%. You know, then I got to $2 million, then a little bit more, then a little bit more. And then I retired when I sold Microsolutions because that was my goal. I wanted and, to retire you, by the time how, I was 35, and I made it just right around, right before 30. And how, how, did you, uh, how did you get the idea even to sell Microsolutions? Did someone approach you, or did you start? Plan- I, I'm, I'm totally people. fascinated by that initial $2 million. Yeah, well, actually, we sold the company for six. I took one million and distributed to the 80 employees. And then I, had, I brought in a partner who was a tech partner who I split the rest with. And so I walked away with 2.5 and a little, right around 2 million after taxes when it was all said and done. I'd saved up, you know, over a million dollars by the time we had sold it because um, we were doing really well. We, in the history of Microsolutions, we never had a losing month let alone losing quarter or year. So I was really able to save a lot of money um, as it got towards the end. And so I, I sold it. I, well, you asked me how. I got inquiries from multiple people. I actually thought I had a deal with a public company, and I forget the name of it. But as we were talking to them, another one came along where a consultant for CompuServe, if you remember them, out of Columbus, Ohio, sure. who was owned by H&R Block, they came to me, and we were one of the leading network integrators and software integrators in the country. I used to write articles for Land Magazine and all the, all the high-end tech publications from back then. And we were, you know, at various points, the largest reseller for Novell Netware and IBM Token Ring and Land Manager and Banyan Systems. I mean, I'm really dating myself, but, you know, Synoptics and Wealthy, all these different high-end technological solutions and I wrote some of the first X.12 software for Walmart. Um, I wrote a video integration database for Zales that 
took an old um, video camera and an AT&T target board and integrated it into a database so that Zales wouldn't have to keep all their you know, fancy watches and diamonds and everything in, in inventory. Um, as a sample, we could just take a picture of it, and then you would just put in the part number and it bring up the picture, and you'd know what you were ordering, and that saved them millions. And so CompuServe came along and said, look, we've got an X.25 network that connects all of Visa um, for when you um, would get a credit card authorization. We want you guys to help us, you know, do systems integration and become the, make us the WANs when you connected disparate companies. And so that was their attraction, and then it went from there, sold it to them. They, you know, helped them take it under their wing. They brought in someone to run it, and I ran off and retired. So $3 million, you basically went from wet t-shirt contests to writing X.25 code or on X.25 yeah, networks. Code, yeah. You had the $3 million, you retired. Now all you wanted to do was watch long-distance basketball no, games. No, no, there was a, no, there was, there was a gap in there, so... At that point in time, I bought a lifetime pass on American Airlines, and all I wanted to do was party like a rock star. And that's what I did. I was a beast. Well, <laughs> I went you, everywhere. What's an example of beast-like behavior? I need to know. I'm, I'm 46, and I haven't, I haven't done my beast thing yet. I haven't done your beasting yet. So it would be like I'd go to um, L.A. Um, I took acting class, classes so I could meet hot girls. I'd go out partying, and I'd be like, hey, Let's let's just go to Vegas. I've got a I've got a pass on American Airlines. Let's just go. And so I grabbed some people. We go to Vegas. Um, another time it was like, let's go to Moscow. <laughs> so we hopped on a plane. We'd hop on a plane to Barcelona. I mean Mexico. I used to go to Puerto Vallarta like every other weekend. Just- but but you were protecting your money during this whole. You were spending, but people don't spend their way to poverty. They invest their way to poverty. And you, you were I keeping track exactly of your investments. And yeah, I still live like I have my lifetime pass, and it was actually a great cost saving. So, you know, it cost me $125,000 for essentially unlimited miles first class. So hmm. I was able to take me and anybody that I wanted to take, and I was guaranteed a seat um, for both of us um, for, on American Airlines for the rest of my life for 125 grand. And it netted out to about 12 cents a mile when I figured it out. And it was a great deal, it saved me a boatload of money. And like I said, I got to party like a rock star. And while I was doing that, I was trading stocks and just killing it, killing it, because this was a period um, in the early 90s when um, the tech market was really, there was a little bit of a recession, then it started to take off. And I was buying and selling names to the point where um, I was at Goldman Sachs and somebody took my track record and brought me in as a partner in the hedge fund we did really well for a while, and then we sold that to, to somebody else. I'm not, I'm not allowed to disclose which hedge fund, but they're still in business. Wow. And then um, that, you know, I was past the 20-some million mark um, when I came back and we started AudioNet, which turned into Broadcast.com. Wow, I had no idea about that. So you turned the three into 20 from basically hedge fund activities and investing. Yeah, just trading and investing. While you were partying like a rock star. That's pretty good. That's a good life. Oh, it was great. It was great. I mean, and then, um, so I, I pretty much funded um, AudioNet when we first started, and that's why I had the lion's share, and Todd Wagner was my partner, but I put up more of the, more of the money. That's why when we sold, it, it was a killing for me. We had brought in uh, some friends that we really were strategic for us at $30,000 a pop um, 
and we sold like 10% of the company to them, and I had the majority of the rest. Wow. So, so I, I'll, I'll tell you my one experience with AudioNet. I was at the time, uh, my company was, among other things, running the People's Court website, and it was going to be the first TV show to be streamed live on the Internet. And we were trying to decide, I think, between um, either Microsoft streaming or you. And I remember we met your sales guy here in New York, and the guy was like, Mark really wants this. This is going to be a great headline pre-IPO. And uh, and I said, okay, but you guys have so many clients, it would be great if you could share some clients with us. But that never happened. But you still did the People's Court streaming website to do the first live TV streaming website. Uh, and not, not uh, long website, after you so. guys, we've got the rights to Judge Mills Lane. We actually did a deal with what was then Artisan that turned into Lionsgate, um, where we got 10% of their company, we gave them some stock, and got rights to all the um, episodes of... Judge Mills Lane, um, gosh, Della Ventura, all these different shows. And so we were way, way, way ahead of the curve with you guys and Lionsgate. And it's funny, you know, I don't think Yahoo fully appreciated, but when they bought us, they owned 10% of Lionsgate. Well, I, I didn't know that was your initial connection to Lionsgate because much, much later, of course, you became a very vocal investor in Lionsgate. That's how we got connected, absolutely. So again, so everything there's sort of a thread that connects everything. So we have we have your interest in watching basketball with AudioNet. Then of course uh, that led to Lionsgate, the Dallas Mavericks. I'm sure you have you know this interest in indie films. that's led to all of your activities with HDTV and Landmark. And then finally we get up to the present where this this basically this cluster with the SEC where they were t- where you beat them it's the first time i've ever seen them defeated so harshly in court but this leads to an internet idea to yep. put you face to face with snapchat and so why don't you describe like the how you know cyberdust which is the name of this you you made that you you registered that domain name back in 2006 yep. how did you know what you I were going to use it I, for I, I have a habit of people will always bring me domain names and try to sell them to me and I always lowball them, like, okay, if they say yes to this, it's worth it. And I end up with a collection of URLs that I just keep, you know, from Cyberdust back then to Practice.com now to um, Matter.com. I wow. just, in case I need them for anything, I have them. And so Cyberdust, I have, like, MyInbox.com. Who knows, you know, how I'll end up using them, but I have them. I think I own EmergencyRoom.com, just crazy stuff. I like um, practice.com. It seems like that should have some value. Yeah, it will eventually for me, right, because they're generic names in a lot of respects that I'll be able to use one way or the other. Now, um, Cyberdust feels a little old school, though, with the word cyber. Yeah, no question it does. And, you know, it, it kind of it is retro in some respects, but like anything else, you know, Twitter, what the hell does that mean, right? Snapchat, right. you pick a name, WhatsApp, everything is you know, there's no such thing as a good URL that that's going to work no matter what. Everything kind of sounds cheesy until it works. So hopefully, people will look at Cyberdust in a couple of years and go, "Yeah, that makes sense." <laughs> it, you so, know, but it, it's I like one-inch names, and even though it's retro, it tells you exactly what it is. You know, it's an app that 30 seconds after you open a message, it disappears forever. It's gone for good into the cyber. You know, it's dust into the cyber. Hence, Cyberdust. Well, but well, back so, to the SEC. So- you know, one of the things that, that happened was, obviously, they um, 
subpoena everything that I have, and I've got all these messages sent with the CEO and others of Mama.com, and everything I said, they were more than happy to take out of context, or everything I wrote, rather. They were more than happy to take out of context, whether it's a message or a blog post, whatever it was, they tried to apply their own context. And, you know, when it was all said and done and I kicked their ass, it, it got me thinking that every, every message that I was sending via text, the minute I hit send, I no longer owned it. I didn't own the text, but I still own the responsibility for what I said or what some people could turn what I said into. And the people who I sent it to really took control of that message. And that didn't sit well with me, and because of my experience with the SEC, it seemed like a good idea to create a new messaging app called CyberDust, which is just as I said. You have to have CyberDust on both sides, and if I send a message to James, James, uh, it'll sit on the server, um, and I'll explain more about our servers in a second. It'll be on the server until um, you open it or 24 hours, whichever comes first. If you don't open it until 24 hours, it's deleted. Um, but once you open it, you have 30 seconds to read it. And then once you've read it, it's deleted from the memory of your device, your phone, and it's also deleted from the memory of the server, never to be seen ever again. There's no metadata. There's no ancillary data. There's no record of it. We, we were so concerned about security and metadata that we don't even allow it to touch a hard drive. So when it's stored on the server waiting for you to open your message, it's not stored on a hard drive. So if someone came in and confiscated our servers, the minute that electricity gets turned off, it's gone forever. And, 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 and if someone so were to grab the hard drives that we use to hold the software itself and try to recreate, and, you know, you know how when you delete on a traditional hard drive, you know, even if you scrub it, there's forensic ways to recreate what was on there. There's nothing to recreate because it's all in volatile RAM. And, and this was the problem the plug, with Snapchat, right? Like even if you, you can forensically hit the Snapchat hard drives and get the messages. Yeah, of course. And Snapchat at this point doesn't even pretend otherwise. You know, there's applications, there's apps that you can download, SnapHack and others, that allow you to recapture anything that's been sent to you or from you. There's even websites where if you put in the login, you can recapture everything. So It's so funny because I I just want to enter one second. My 15-year-old daughter, she, of course, uses Snapchat with all her friends and her boyfriend. And the second that that rumor even started that Snapchat doesn't delete everything, all of her friends instantly deleted their accounts and scrubbed everything that they could. Yeah, and it's still not scrubbed. (laughs) Yeah, it's there. Hey, I'm a parent. I'm going to find it. And, you know, that was the whole point with CyberDust, that the minute you hit – I have a, a daughter who's about to turn 11. She's not texting yet, um, at least not that we can find. She's iMessaging a little bit. Um, but I'm not worried about her. She's a good kid. But I'm worried about all the idiots she's going to be texting, male or female, friends or boyfriends, over in the future because it's not – you know, we get a sense of our own kids – and look, if they're going to do bad things, we have a sense they're going to do bad things and we can hopefully deal with it. But the one things we know that we can't control are their friends and or business associates or you know people, they acquaintances they come across. And when you send a text to any of them, they own that text. 
when you send a business text, you no longer own it. Somebody else owns it. When I send a text, somebody else owns it. Now, the first thought is, well, I don't send anything that's bad, you know, so why should I care? Well, that's exactly what I thought with the SEC. You know, I turned over everything that I had to the SEC voluntarily. My first conversations with the SEC, I didn't even have a lawyer because I knew I had done nothing wrong. But they, they, wanted a, they wanted a scalp, and so they created their own context. And so did they, did they ever try to come to you and media. say, listen, we can make this all go away, just give us $300 million? Yeah, right? I wouldn't even, I didn't, wouldn't even have that conversation. Hmm. Would not, because I'd done nothing wrong. And I was, I'm blessed in that I could afford to deal with it, and they were just so scuzzy and nasty that it just gave me great pride to be able to nail them, <laughs> to use a nice term. I but mean, did, event, what happens after a court case like that? Do they, like, write you a, a little apology and send a bottle of wine or something? Well, they go on and try to get better jobs by saying, hey, it wasn't my fault. It was the other guy's fault. I'm the one who made the last eight years, right? Or I, I dealt with the whole thing. So, you know, hire me at your law firm so that, you know, I know how to deal with the idiots, the other idiots at the SEC. So that's what goes I on. I mean, even while, even before you know, I won, there were multiple people who were I- issuing releases saying that they worked on the Mark Cuban matter as, as a point of pride. So think of, look at, think of this, James. They leave the SEC, they take a job at a law firm, and as part of the announcement at the new law firm, announcing their, new, their job at the new law firm, they refer to my case, which hadn't been finished yet. I mean, and it could have been their claim to fame was taking your text and manipulate them to make a case. It probably was, right? I mean, it was ridiculous. It was just absolutely ridiculous. So how do we know, like, so how do we know that CyberDust doesn't have the same problems with Snapchat? Like, you say it, but do you have, like, an outside uh, company that comes in and audits the technology? Working on that right now. Um, I mean, we're still only really four, four months old or about to be four months old. So we're, we're, going, we're working with an Israeli security company first to make sure that all our I's are dotted and T's are crossed um, before we open it up. But, yeah, I mean, I use it. Um, we don't, we're not on Android yet. We'll be in a couple of weeks. But once we are, I'll be using it exclusively. And so I guess that's your first proof. And, you know, I'm sure there's people out there trying to hack us and get stuff off their phones and prove it's not the case. And that hasn't happened yet. But, you know, and, and let me make another point. We're not trying to be NSA proof. We're not trying to be protect you from the government. Um, if the government wants to wiretap you, if they want to put um, a network device on um, and tap your internet connection, they're going to be able, even though we encrypt it, they're going to be able to intercept it and figure something out. You know, right. everything can be hacked. So we're not trying to protect you from the NSA, at least not yet. What we are trying to protect you, we're trying to protect your daughter against her stupid friends, right, who take a text of hers that starts off as innocent, gets posted on Twitter or Facebook or, or Pinterest or Tumblr, gets um, reposted somewhere else, and then someone else, you know, puts it in a context that's totally not welcome, you know, or, you know, you're in a business environment and you're talking about an employee and you just send a regular text and that person goes to work for one of your competitors or someone else and has kept that text and says, look, this is what they were saying about you and it causes a lawsuit. Or you're, you're doing business and you get sued for some reason, valid or not, and you have to produce everything in discovery. Well, whatever text you have or whatever text someone that you sent to somebody that they kept, they may have to produce that. 
and now you're screwed, right? It's only going to be used against you, never for you. With Cyberdust, there's nothing to produce. And it seems like you could up. almost do a Hotmail style marketing technique where like someone like my daughter, kind of, uh, once she downloads Cyberdust, it could automatically set up her Gmail so that if anyone sends her a Gmail, she, they get an automatic response back saying, hey, uh, I'd love to hear from you, but I only uh, receive messages on Cyberdust. And that part of it's a great idea, right? We hadn't done that yet, but it's a great idea, you know, to do an autoresponder to push people over. But, you know, we've got parents providing it for their kids. Again, if a kid, you know, it's not your kids that are the biggest concern because you see them and deal with them. It's all their friends. It's not what you say that's the big concern. It's how somebody that you send a message to can misuse what you have. Context never, any context can be applied to any message. You know, I love you, James, for doing this context turns into Mark Cuban loves James. Oh, so he's giving him a special treatment for whatever. Or, you know, you, it's just crazy how people will assign whatever context they need it that, that works for them. And then when you take that and post it in social media, it takes on a life of its own. But now, now it seems like though uh, public companies won't be allowed to use this because don't they have to save their emails for a certain number of years? There's no question that there's compliance issues that public companies have to deal with, and so you haven't seen me talk, you haven't heard me talk about an enterprise version at all because we're not prepared to go there yet. We're not prepared to deal with HIPAA laws for physicians. But if you're communicating with your lawyer, your stockbroker, if it's you personally using it for personal business, whatever it may be. You, you should definitely be using Cyberdust. If you are using it um, for non-compliance-related um, messaging, you should definitely be using Cyberdust. I mean, I use it with all my business associates, you know, unless there's some overriding reason. You know, I'll use email where it's something I, w I need to retain for whatever reason. It's a document I need to save, whatever. But anything else, any general conversation, you know, the other, I guess the best way to analogize it is that it's like a face-to-face -face conversation. You know, you and I can sit down, talk face-to-face. -face. There's no record, no recording, no nothing. That's the analogy of Cyberdust. It's like a face-to-face -face conversation. And do you have a sense yet of how you're going to – I mean, this is one of those things where it's going to be a network effect style of marketing. So do you have a sense yet of how you're going to build up? That's exactly – it's just network effect, right? As we keep on adding features um, – more and more people are using it. We're into hundreds of thousands of users now, and oh, wow. you know we really have we haven't done any market be marketing besides me doing it, interviews. And once we release Android, we think that's going to grow significantly. And then we have we're working on a Windows version, and we'll have a web version after that. So you know, hopefully that network effect continues to expand it. The, the um, network effect's really important because let's say like you and I were emailing the other day. Let's say I got back a response that says. James, Mark would like to um, read your message, but he can't unless you download Cyberdust. I would have downloaded Cyberdust. I do that all the time. I do it all the time. Um, if, and if you send me a text message, my response is download Cyberdust. This is the best way to reach me. I don't respond to my emails or um, my texts on a timely basis. You know, you're going to get the delayed response. But the other, the other um, law of unintended consequences is that because once you open it, it's gone in 30 seconds, you can't procrastinate. <laughs> so you have to respond, you have to deal with it. 
And because I've pushed people from email to Cyberdust, my email volume has declined dramatically, which is huge for me. And it's also freed up time in my day because I've got to deal with things quickly. And my responses are also much shorter because I understand that, you know, you've only got 30 seconds to read each of the responses. So, so you know, again, this this connects the dots a little bit further in the sense that I sort of feel like every time you open your mouth, Mark, in the public, somebody jumps on you. Like, and, and that, in general, seems to happen on the Internet. Like, as beautiful as the Internet is for unifying voices from around the world, there's also this thing that I call outrage porn, where just yep. someone like you will say something, and then five articles will say, Mark Cuban's a racist, and then it just spreads like wildfire. It's like just pornography for the masses. You know, I call it headline porn, and I love your word outrage porn because it starts with headline porn and turns into outrage porn, and you're exactly right. And, you know, to me, kind of the, the bigger takeaway from that is we've got to start shrinking our digital footprint. And, and I'll pitch another one of my software um, products that just came out a couple of days ago. Um, it's called Expire, X-P-I-R-E, and it's also just available on the iPhone store right now. Um, but we'll get to the other platforms as well. And the whole concept is you have to shrink your digital footprint because what you said six months ago or six days ago, six months ago, or two or three or five or six years ago, who knows how that's going to be received at some point in the future. What Expire does is several things. First, it allows it's a client for Twitter that allows you to set an expiration time for your tweets. So if I want a tweet to expire in one minute, five minutes, one hour, one day, or several months and soon a year, you can set that tweet to expire. Um, If I want to go back and do a keyword search across all my tweets to see if I, you know, said something two years ago that I don't recall and I don't want out there, I can do a keyword search. If I want to go back and look at my tweets, and there's some limitations, Twitter's got an API limit of 3,200 tweets that we can go back to that we're working through some workarounds for. But anything that within the past 3,200 tweets, I can go back and go through and one by one delete them, which is exactly what I've been doing on my account. The goal is to shrink that digital footprint. Now, why would you want to do it? Again, because whatever you say can and will be used against you if people get that opportunity. That's your outrage porn. And I think beyond that, you know, People are going to take marketers are going to and marketers, law enforcement, government agencies, you name it, are going to be able to look at your digital profile and know more about you than you know about yourself. They're going to be able to look at all your tweets, your retweets, your follows, your favorites, your um, Pinterest posts, your Pinterest pins, your Tumblr posts and reposts, your Facebook posts and likes. You take all that across your entire social media spectrum, and that creates a psychographic profile of you that says more about you if you're an active social media user than what your family knows or you know about yourself. And if you don't want to open yourself up to all those different elements, I mean, it's a certainty that if you're applying for a job with me, I'm looking at all your social media profiles, and it's going to influence my decision about you. It's not just did you put up a silly picture on Facebook when you were drunk. As, you know, I don't care about that. But, you know, who you follow, what you follow, who you tweet, retweet, what you pin and post, 
it tells me what you're into, and if you tell me you're into A and everything about you says you're into B, well, you know, that incongruency is going to make a difference in whether or not I hire you. Well, what, you know, if, what if somebody deletes everything, though, and you say, look, you said you were into A. Why did you have to hide everything? Well, but if you make it as a course of, of action to say, you know what, it's not about you, it's about everybody. You know, I don't want to be um, stereotyped. I don't want to be pigeonholed based off of my social media because I use social media in one way and it doesn't really reflect who I am. Then, okay, I'm buying that. Or, you know, if it's just I don't trust how people can take advantage of my social media. It's just like I delete my cookies or I clean up my cookies on my um, browser and I delete my search history. It's not like I care if I see my search history. You just never know where that's going to end up. I think people understand that they're – there is a need. People have their own certain need for privacy, and I don't think that'll be a problem. No, I agree. And you know, it, it's say, sort okay, of a, a give take. And the, the problem is, some bloggers want all their posts up there. Like I like having all my posts up there, but sometimes people will look back through four years worth of blogs, take stuff out of context, and there's just nothing you can do about it. Like people you know, want a little bit better. Porn. I mean, I've got ten years worth of blogs, and they're a little bit better because you. You have unlimited space to write. There's no limit on words, so you can pretty well, you know, cover the context. But even then, the SEC looked at my blogs and said, "You know what? You're a win-at-all-cost guy, so you'll cheat to win." Now, yeah, I saw they took the photo of you with some money in front of you and uh, said, "This is why you're you're guilty." Exactly. Exactly. Look, your blog said you you hate to lose. You know, so you obviously will do anything not to lose. They literally said that in my trial um, with the SEC. But you so wouldn't have your done expire on that, though. Used against you if, if you know, there's an adversarial scenario, and, you know, you've got to be careful. Now, have I considered going back and deleting all my blogs? I, I, I think I'm with you. I like having it because I think, you know, what's changed is we, in the past, we may have done some short-form blogs, and I, I really never had too many of those. But now with Twitter and Facebook and um, Tumblr, we can we have other mediums for the short form stuff and the blogs are more long form and that i think that provides some protection but you know to your point that also provides a profile of you and and a canon will be used against you now let's let's take this into the the latest thing which was what you said about you know uh the clippers and how it shouldn't be forced uh, to right. be sold just because this guy said something and then everybody went crazy. But I think your your whole point was nobody should be forced into selling a $2 billion asset. That's not like no, what actually, I wasn't, I wasn't about. being so specific about the Clippers, right, because I, I really wasn't in a position to be able to. Um, there's all kinds of rules about what we can and can't talk about. But, what I, you know, if you go back and look at the entire first interview when I was interviewed um, – after or before a Mavs game, what, what I said was, you know, the NBA influences a lot of uh, culture. Um, and part of that influence, this case is going to have an influence on what happens outside of the NBA. And that could create a slippery slope. And that slippery slope could apply to players. You know, you could see a media crush after a player said something, not just a, an see. NBA player, but any athlete, any celebrity. You know, whatever standards we apply to this scenario are most likely going to be applied to um, other people as well. And that was the slippery slope. So so ultimately, though, 
I feel like this, the, the sale of the Clippers to Steve Ballmer was a good thing for you, right? Like, you have the Nets sold for $480 million five years ago. Now the Clippers, uh, arguably a much worse team, sold for $2 billion. What, is the, what do you think that makes the Mavericks worth? One zillion dollars. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll, I believe you. So, you know, actually, so, after the Bucks came were sold um, not that long ago, they sold for like five hundred eighty-five million, which was a record price at the time. And I came out and said that that was cheap, and that the buyer got a bargain. That every NBA franchise was worth at least a billion dollars, and I got laughed at. And so, you know, it, I still firmly believe that. I think where people misconstrue is that the value of a team is not related to its current record. Um, Every team goes through cycles. You know, we've had Dirk Nowitzki for 15 years, and we've been good for 15 years. Um, other teams had their star for a period. They were able to leverage that, and then, you know, you go through a down period. That's, that's the cycle um, in this business. So teams' performance doesn't really define their value. Whether, where the value is defined in the ancillaries in your market, your local TV contract, and the national TV contract. Because the, the beauty of professional sports right now is, and the NBA in particular, is one, there's only 30 of them. And so if you're wealthy and an NBA fan or have a consortium of wealthy friends and are huge NBA fans, if you want to buy a team, you have to convince one of 30 owners to sell that team, and that's not necessarily easy to do. Two, there's a declining number of high-visibility, high-draw sporting events, that live events um, that can draw an audience on television. And so the NFL and Major League Baseball contracts are, are fulfilled. They're, they're long-term deals. And so we're, you know, really the last remaining vestal of live television, live sports television programming that's available. That makes us a premium commodity. Um, that means we're going to get, hopefully, premium pricing for our national TV deal. The same applies for local TV deals. In the case of the Clippers, their TV deal comes up in a couple of years. In the case of the Boxers, came up. You know, every TV deal at some point comes up, but at least for the foreseeable future, live sports programming from the NBA, local and national, um, has huge value. And then the ancillaries are whatever value you can gain if you happen to own real estate or whatever, you know, the, the arena that you may or may not be able to build can create even more value. Um, the Bucks, as an example, are looking to open up a new arena. That, that's of huge value. You put all those things together and it's, you know, you're not going to find an alternative asset that you can use. It's not like you could say, well, if I don't buy that basketball team, there's, 30 other things I could get equal value from. That, those just don't exist. Well, why like don't more basketball teams go, so, go public? Like, what's that? Why don't more basketball teams go public to take advantage of maybe higher values in the public markets? You know, it's something I'm sure that'll come up. Um, I don't know necessarily now that we're allowed to, but I think it's something that conceivably could change. Now, all the way on the other end of the spectrum – I know you're going to start filming the next season of Shark Tank or whatever. What, next week, what's, yep. I use Shark Tank to teach my kids, my 15-year-old and my 12-year-old daughters. I use it to teach them about business. I hit pause throughout to ask them what they think of the different businesses, to ask them what the valuations are once the basic math is out there. What 
what do you look for? How does someone impress you in the Shark Tank arena? Well, it's like any other business. Um, I look for a business that I think can grow. I look for an entrepreneur that can run it. I look for something that's differentiated so I don't have, it's not as much of a grind. Um, and I look for a business that I could add value to. Um, depending what type of business it is, if I think it's fast growth and significant growth opportunity, I'm less concerned with valuation because I'm arrogant enough to think that I can help it grow quickly and so we can exceed the value that may be apparent to the other sharks. If it's a grinded out you know, product sales company that um, has competition or won't be you know, doesn't have an accelerator like technology or something that has a network effect, then I'm more concerned with valuation. Um, that's kind of the criteria I use. You know, the, the network effect is so hard, though, because I feel like it's either a one-zero. Like, either you get lucky... It's binary. You You're right. It's, those are very binary businesses, and either you hit it or you don't. You know, it's either a grand slam or a loser. You're exactly right. So do you think... I mean, you have to have a lot of confidence in yourself and in the company to think you're going to be the one. Oh, yeah, no question, right? And, it, you know, it's also a risk-reward. You know, if you're, you know, I'm blessed. So financially, if, if I'm putting in 100000 or 250 or even, let's say, a million dollars, but I think the upside is $100 million, yeah, I'll, I'll probably write that check. If I think the upside is $6 million, I'm not going to risk a million for a network effect type company. So, so Mark, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This has been really great. Um, I, I'm going to use CyberDust, and I, I'm going to encourage my kids to use it. I, it sounds like a great product. I can't wait till it's on the web because I do most of my messaging still on the old-fashioned uh, oh, desktop. It's, it's easier to, you know what, James? I agree 100%, and we had a battle over which platform, whether to go to Android or web first because – and since the sidekick went away, it's impossible to type on a tablet or a phone. <laughs> yeah, I agree. The BlackBerry, I used to love the BlackBerry, and now I can't type on a phone. That's exactly right. I mean, I lived on my sidekick. I even told John Legere at T-Mobile I would pay whatever price to get a current version of a sidekick. I'll, I'll buy it from him if he would sell it to me. But on CyberDust, real quick, thank you. Um, if anybody wants to talk to me or reach out to me or message me. Um, my ID is blog maverick, just like my blog itself, B-L-O-G maverick, M-A-V-R-E-R-I-C-K. And I sign up, follow me. You can ask me questions. I can't get to everybody because that, that list has already grown significantly. But I do a, a motivational um, uh, quote pretty much every other day, give or take, sometimes every day. And then I'll also respond to some questions that I think are good. I'll do um, one of the features of, of CyberDust. Well, two of the features real quick of CyberDust is, one, you can do pictures. Um, we're not at video yet. We're adding that. We don't have group chat yet, but we're adding that as well. But you can blast out. A, you can send a picture one-on-one -on -one to someone to receive it. But we also have a blast feature. So if you want to send some a picture or a message to two people, five people, ten people, or hit one button and it sends it to all your friends, um, we have that feature. And I use it to blast out a quote of the day. I use it to, to respond to questions that I think are interesting. And I blast out the response to everybody who follows me on, on CyberDust. So follow me at Blog Maverick, and you'll 
had the chance to discuss it with things with me, but you'll also get my motiv- hopefully motivational quote of the day and more. And, and, and Mark, one final question. Sure. Your first, go back to that feeling of that first million from Microsolutions uh-huh. and that first feeling from when you first made a million at Microsolutions and when you first made a billion off of Broadcast.com. Which was better? Rank them. Oh, the billion by far. <laughs> I don't know. The, the freedom fun. of the million would feel the really good you it know, was, it compared was a to the billion. billion. Right? It was just like, oh my God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love this. My life has changed, but I got to keep on working because I haven't hit my goals yet and there's so much more I want to do. The billion was, I can't believe it. I was literally, um, I was sitting in front of a computer naked, hitting the refresh because we were close waiting until my net worth hit that billion when the stock price got to a certain point. And then I kind of screamed and jumped around um, and then got dressed. <laughs> did, did you hit the sell button right there? Like, okay, oh, a no, billion no, on no, the no, mark. We were still going. I still had, you know, I had to get enough so that after tax, I was still worth several billion. So I still had a lot of work to do. And, and plus, as a public company, you know, a real quick story. When, when we went public, um, we, we went out at 18 and we – the first trade was at um, 62 and three quarters, and it got as high as 72, and then traded back down to 62 and and I think three quarters. And I just remember my first thought was, "Oh my God!" My second was, "This this was the biggest first day jump in the history of the stock market." I was very, you know, we were we were freaked out and and right. crazed about that. And then I was like, "Oh wait, somebody bought this stock at 72 dollars." I got to get my ass back to work because they have a lot of expectations. And, you know, I really felt an obligation to everybody who owned the stock. So it wasn't so, you know, obviously, you know, my, my net worth was a motivation, but I wanted to make sure nobody felt guilty for buying broadcast.com stock. And so that was all, that was just as big, if not more motivation. So they were, I wasn't, I wasn't sitting back when I hit that magic number and thinking, okay, this is it. Let's get out. I mean, well, well, then it was good that you you sort of outsourced the problem to Yahoo, and they took care of you. Like they, they that stock went up quite a bit after you sold to them. Yeah, everybody thought I was an idiot because <laughs> I col- I collared my stock six months afterwards when I was first eligible to, and the stock kept on going up. And they were like, "You idiot! You you shouldn't have collared." I'm like, you know what? I've been through this before. I was trading stocks in the a little bit in the 80s. I don't know if you remember. Um, there, you know, when the PC companies first started going public, Dell Computer, um, Microsoft, there was a company called Eagle Computer, which was a hot clone. And the guy, unfortunately and tragically, the night before his IPO was to price, um, he died in a car wreck. And But at that point in time, every PC stock was just off the charts. And then in the late 80s, early 90s, every networking company just, just blasted off and just went through the roof. And then in the mid-early 90s, before the Internet boom, all those networking companies just took a tumble. And so when we sold and the Internet boom was really just going crazy, I was like, you know what? I've seen this movie several times already. There's no question in my mind how it's going to end. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover my stock. I'm going to put a, um, a hedge on. And you know what? I'll, I'll be just fine with, with my net worth. And a lot of people said I was crazy, and then, you know, the whole Internet bubble burst, and, you know, I was one of the few guys that were, was able to survive it. Well, again, I feel like 
you get uh, the short end of the stick in terms of public opinion on that because people said you were crazy. Then people said you were lucky, even though it took a lot of skill to. Uh, for, first of all, I sold a company around the same time. I did not sell at the top or anywhere near it. I sold at the bottom. <laughs> Or I didn't get a chance to sell, so it's it's very difficult to to pick the right moments. And oh yeah, you know, and luck obviously and timing have a lot to do with it. And scale, you know, I sold my first company, and you know we were private, and the scale was nowhere near. But you know, even then, people told me I was lucky because the inner, you know, the networking boom wasn't as strong. Um, you know, so people are always going to say that. But the reality is, you know, you. Luck is a matter of scale, but effort is, is everything else. And, and you know, it wasn't my first company that I sold. It wasn't the second company that I had sold. You know, I'd been through it multiple times before, but I busted my ass to get there. And, you know, I made some good decisions, made some bad decisions. But, it, you know, but I still get, you know, I still get upset when I see YouTube and all these Spotify, Pandora, it was 1996, and we had hundreds of internet radio stations. We right. had thousands of, of artists that we streamed. We had, you know, all everything that YouTube did with video now, except for the content ID systems for, for royalties, we were doing, like we were talking about, you know, with, with People's Court and, and with Judge Mills Lane. We were streaming stuff that, you know, what was then um, broadband 700K and, you know, we were doing indexing, stuff they don't even do now. We were taking closed caption and indexing it, so many different things, you know. Um, and we invented so many things. All the pop-up, you know, on the web, all the, the pop-up ads, we invented those. We called them guaranteed click-throughs, um, pop-unders, we did those. And so there's a lot of things that we brought to Yahoo that when the bubble burst, they just f***ed up. And so, you know, that that kind of upsets me in some respects, but... I got paid for to overcome it, so I've been. Yeah, you're, okay. you're allowed to be upset a little bit. They that's what they paid you for. Exactly. exactly. Well, what do you think is the next wave? Like, you know, all these things come in waves. What do you think people should be looking at right now, public and private? Um, specific companies. You know, it raises a different question in terms of the public companies. The stock market has gotten so complex. I don't think anybody really knows what makes it tick. I mean, right. you, you follow it more closely than I do these days because so much money is chasing, you know, there's half as many stocks today, public companies, as there were in, the, in 1995, you know. So there's so many more dollars chasing fewer companies. So there's no real surprises. It's really hard to find undervalued companies. It's hard to find shorts. You know, it's a much more difficult market. And, I, you know, I, I think... The market's gotten so complex, I don't know if people really understand how it works. You know, there used to be certain rules, now there are no rules. So, you know, in terms of what I look for, I, I gear more towards private companies, and I'm interested in sensors because I think we're getting away from um, typing in things to get a response. I think we're gearing towards, here's my heart rate, tell me what I need, to, you know, it'll automatically tell me what I need to know, or I've got a company, Motion Loft. It counts people as you're walking down the street and informs the retailer what they need to know or the commercial leasing organization what they need to know. So I think the days of us typing something into Google and figuring out what we need a response for are starting to slow down. And the days of all the elements and whatever things we can track through sensors and information being proactively provided to us is increasing. 
And then secondary to that is um, personalized medicine, which I think we're not there yet, but as you as the cost and time it takes to um, decode the human genome, and I'm not even technically literate enough to give you all the details, but the time it takes to decode all the information about that's in our body, you know, because essentially our bodies are just math equations, as that decreases and the cost decreases, we're going to be able to come up with personalized solutions to, you know, medical illnesses and, and basic things as well, congestion, you know, in your throat or nose or whatever it may be, to the point that, you know, when your kids have kids, they'll say, you know, Grandpa James, you know, was it true that you guys bought over-the-counter medicines and everybody bought the same kind of medicine? You bought something like, what was it called, Sudafed? And, and you all bought, like, aspirin? Everybody bought, and you'll say, yeah. And they'll say, that's so barbaric. And you'll say, yeah, it was then, too. You know, they even had warning labels that said, you might be the one unlucky schmuck that dies from this, but we didn't have any choices. Now you go in, they, you know, take a little prick of your blood, and, I'll, you know, they just, through your skin, they give you a, a, a solution to whatever's wrong. And I think that's the course we're going on. And then I think the third thing I'm looking at right now, obviously, with Expire and CyberDust, are privacy elements. You know, it's not just the NSA, it's not just government agencies, but I think between what we, between sensors, between video cameras, between audio recorders, between our profiles that are everywhere, um, heck, it, you know, the, the pictures we save on Box and Dropbox and Google Drive and whatever, um, that is creating a profile of us that could that we're all going to be very concerned about being public and being you know, used to sell to us or being used for other purposes, like I mentioned earlier, employment, um, school, whatever it may be. And so I think privacy is rapidly becoming an issue we all need to address. So those are, I think I like the idea of reducing the, re, the idea of reducing a digital footprint. Also, it sort of reminds me of you know we all spend too much time being connected anyway, as opposed to face to face. Like it's no, sort of right. a return that's, that's to back one of to my natural. Shark Tank themes. So I did L.A. Haunted Hayride, and I did um, Rugged Race because people want entertainment to make them put their devices down. You're exactly right. Yeah, and I think we should just in terms of psych- human psychology. It's it's how we we're we're evolutionary beings, not uh, cyber beings. So yeah. you know, it could be a return to that. I, I I can't disagree with that at all. I think that's a great theme, and it's just a question of who does it best. Well, Mark, once again, I really appreciate the time uh, you took to come onto the podcast. Uh, hope to have you on again at some point, and uh, look forward to all the iterations of of Cyber Dust and everything. I appreciate it, James. I enjoy your your writing. Keep it up. Your blog posts are great, so I always learn something. Thanks, Mark. Thanks a lot. I'll talk to you soon. Uh You got it. Thank you. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.
Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.